Hello and welcome to Polytrope, the podcast of many twists and turns. I'm your host, Nick Barr, coming to you on a foggy San Francisco afternoon. So last time we checked in, we talked about the business model of elite universities in the United States. And you can go listen to that podcast. You can also check out polytrope.substack.com where I post the audio and accompany it with what I think are helpful visuals, um, feedback TBD. But we discovered a pretty like interesting business model that ran counter to at least my naive assumption. I, I assumed that Harvard made money off of its tuition and was very expensive, so therefore it generated a lot of cash. In fact, Harvard loses money on its students. Uh, it spends more than it earns on tuition, and that's typical of all elite universities like the IVs and Stanford and MIT. Um, so, so okay, if, if these schools are losing money uh, on tuition, then where are they making their money? Well, it turns out they're making money through endowments, and uh, endowments uh, continue to increase. So Harvard, for instance, just raised $9 billion over five years. That money then actually goes to spending on students because these elite universities need to outspend each other to attract students. Um, and then they accept student bodies from increasingly wealthy families because ultimately they're going to need those students to become multimillionaires, to become billionaires, so that they can donate when they're alumni. Um, and then with those donations, the schools can spend more money, thereby attracting even more wealthy students. And there's a little bit of a vicious circle there, isn't there? Um, it's not really clear where this all ends. Um, and quoting tough in his book, The Years That Matter Most, he says, it's a phenomenon that seems unsustainable and yet at the same time unstoppable. And I think that's kind of a pithy way to put it. It's not clear whether this vicious circle of spending will somehow collapse the system or will just simply make elite universities that much more elite, um, sort of reaching new heights of um, otherness compared to the rest of higher ed, right? I mean, Elite university uh, endowments are up 3x over the last 20 years. They're spending 10 times as much as they were 50 years ago. So maybe that'll just continue in the year 2050. You'll have trillion-dollar endowments and million-dollar-per-year academic spending, and kids will sort of live in these uh, sort of futuristic utopias that are completely disconnected from the rest of the world. I don't know. It's not really clear. And so uh, as I noted at the end of the last podcast, it's not really clear whether all this focus on elite universities is really that important because uh, they really do represent a small number of college goers, less than 1%. At the same time, that 1% ends up being disproportionately powerful in society. So we can't really just dismiss this pattern as irrelevant to society overall. But I was leaving that last podcast with a desire to understand, well, what does it look like for the rest of the schools, for um, less elite, still selective, but less elite universities, and, and what does it look like for them? And um, thankfully, Paul Tuff does a case study on one school, Trinity, which of course is still uh, quite elite and private. So we're not we're not all the way to public, publicly funded higher ed yet, but um, it's still a pretty fascinating case study, and I think one that's typical of many universities in the United States. So I'm going to sort of walk through 
uh, a typical year um, for uh, an admissions admissions officer at Trinity. And this is all pulled from Tuff's book, but sort of condensed. And again, I'll try to post visuals and text on the Substack to kind of complement this episode. So Tuff follows uh, the career of Trinity's new enrollment manager. His name is Angel Perez. So Perez is um, hired in, I think, 2015 to help reverse some negative trends at Trinity. Trinity is operating at the time at a loss of 8 million bucks a year. Trinity is falling in the ranks of top colleges. And when he looks at the situation, Perez actually sees a, a, a negative trend, which is by relying on SAT scores, Trinity is continuing to accept students who are uh, from wealthy backgrounds, actually kind of underachieve academically, but overachieve on standardized tests thanks to being able to afford sort of world-class test prep that teaches these kids how to hack the system. And so you sort of end up getting, um, and I don't want to unfairly stereotype, but just sort of like lazy, entitled kids who don't really show up academically, much to the frustration of the faculty. So Perez leads a change at Trinity to make testing um, optional, so you can submit your application without revealing your test scores. And then Tuff goes deep with Perez to sort of walk through what that year looks like. And again, this is a this is a pretty typical year. Um, one thing that is interesting right off the bat is I kind of had this persona in my head of an admissions officer, but um, really this position of enrollment manager speaks to the complexity of the task at hand because Perez and his team are going to have to do some pretty gnarly math. They're going to have to take 6,000 applications and from those uh, yield 600 freshmen who produce $19 million in revenue. And so we'll talk about uh, how his team does that. So it starts with like, how do you generate 6,000 applications through extensive recruiting over the summer and early fall? And you've got to keep in mind that that number itself at the mouth of the funnel is actually pretty important because one of the ways colleges are ranked is through their acceptance rate. And there's this uh, ranking, I think it's the US World News Report or US and World News Report, that's sort of the bane of admissions officers' existence, but is slurped up by uh, sort of the people, by families and probably by employers too, as sort of this reputable ranking. Um, and Trinity's in, let, I think, the mid-30s. They want to be higher. And one of the factors into your ranking is your acceptance rate. The lower your acceptance rate, the better. Therefore, these schools are highly incented to boost um, applications sort of at the mouth of the funnel. So you've got 6,000 applications, and you're going to be able to admit um, 600 kids. So uh, Trinity, like a lot of schools, has an early decision process that kicks off in November. Um, and of course, early decision yields uh, pretty much 100% acceptance rate. In other words, like if, if you offer uh, a kid early decision, they're obligated to accept that. Um, one thing that I learned about the early decision process at Trinity, and I assume is common elsewhere, that's where the athletic recruits come in. Trinity doesn't offer scholarships, but 
recruiters all the same can kind of get a word in with Perez and his team and say, hey, we really want this kid to come. And in fact, of the 300 students who are admitted early decision, about half of those are athletic recruits. Athletic recruits and the, and, uh, and the rest of those kids tend to be wealthier than average. Tough doesn't go into details, but early decision does yield disproportionately wealthy kids. Um, I'm curious to learn why that is and whether that's necessary, but just a note that those 300 students that are admitted up front um, are disproportionately wealthy. And that, that includes the athletic recruits at a school like Trinity that's, um, you know, think lacrosse, think baseball, think team sports that um, uh, exist at high schools that are prep schools or, or um, able to afford facilities. So um, your, your hunch there might be actually um, that those students are less well off, but that tends not to be the case at Trinity. I don't think that necessarily scales to like a D1 school that is offering scholarships. But um, 300 students are admitted as early as December, right? So in a way that's really good for the enrollment manager, you've eliminated uncertainty by half. You needed 600 kids, you've just accepted 300 kids. Some of those early decision kids go into the wait list and sort of join the rest of the funnel of regular decision. So now you've got 300 more seats to fill. And the first thing the admissions officers do is narrow the list down to about 3,200 kids who they would like to admit. So we've got 3,200 really amazing kids. We'd like to accept them. We have a sense of their demographics, um, their needs, um, their academic record. Um, we're getting to know them. But we can't accept all 3,200. We can only accept 300. And furthermore, this is where we start to do the numbers on our $19 million. We have to generate $19 million in revenue. We're operating on a loss right now. So how do we go from 3,200 to ultimately 1,700? Now, what's the number 1,700? Keep in mind that you want 300 kids to accept, but not all kids who get into Trinity are going to accept. So you also do need to do some new math here, which is, how many um, acceptances should we send out to expect a 300 accept rate? Um, and that's what's called the yield rate. The yield rate is the ratio of kids who end up going to the school after receiving um, offers. At Trinity, it's about a 20% yield rate at this stage for regular decision. So all that math is letting them know that they need to offer about 1,700 kids um, seats at Trinity. And so this is like, you know, you've been working from the 6,000 applications and you've been working backward from the 300. This is like where the rubber hits the road and it becomes basically impossible for any mere human to do that math, right? Who, how do I narrow from 3,200 great kids to 1,700 kids who I think there's a pretty good chance that 20% of them will accept and produce $19 million in revenue? It's just like, uh, beyond uh, any mere mortal to figure that out. And so that's where um, quantitative partners come in. And so enrollment managers, almost all of them, according to Tuff, partner with these sort of like white glove, under the hood companies that do hardcore quant number crunching. Um, he calls it economic ec econometric modeling. Um, so from 3,200, these services do econometric modeling that 
produce 1,700 kids who are likely to produce 300 acceptances at $19 million in revenue. So with some of the, the modeling that happens here, a big part of this modeling is when Trinity decides who to offer um, who to offer scholarships to. So if we back way out, Trinity needs 19 million bucks. The uh, tuition there is 54,000. So they can offer on average a 42% discount on tuition. They can offer um, basically an average of 32,000 bucks a kid. But deciding who and how much to offer those discounts to is purely sort of in the domain of that econometric modeling. Because if I offer this lower income kid 5,000 bucks, he might accept but not contribute sufficiently to the 19 million. But if I offer this middle income kid 10,000 bucks, that might be sufficient to get him to accept, right? And there's all sorts of like interesting mind games going on here. It's not just about the money. It's, uh, these kids aren't making decisions purely on a financial spreadsheet basis. They're also making it on an emotional basis. How much does this school want me? And offering some kind of discount, offering some kind of scholarship, even if it's not tremendous or life-changing, can oftentimes be the thing that tips the scales from the kid saying, no thanks, I'm going to go to Colgate or some other competing school to... Trinity really wants me, so I'm going there. So one of the, the big kind of aha moments for me in mapping this out is understanding that scholarships and discounts uh, and grants aren't, aren't offered by the college purely on a financial need basis. They're, they're part of a larger game theoretical modeling of making sure that we're able to get the student body we need and we're able to hit the revenue goals that we need. So by... Um, March, those offers go out, 1,700 offers go out, and um, only 20%, only you know, 300 of those kids actually end up accepting and attending Trinity. And those 300 plus the original 300 produced from early decision constitute the 600 kids that uh, Trinity needs. And so Tuff just walks us through this as a little bit of uh, important sausage making and and showing how difficult the job is that you have someone like Perez who has all of his um, principles in the right place, uh, is someone who wants to eliminate uh, or who wants to make testing optional because he believes that it's attracting the wrong kind of student, but at the end of the day still has to do like cold and hard math to produce 19 million bucks and 600 freshmen and uh, a lot of the students who get crunched out from 3200 to 1700 are the kids who are the highest need um, and that's sort of just a fact of the system um, so i don't think it's a job for now to imagine alternate systems but part of my motivation for doing this uh, investigation in the first place was just to sort of figure out, hey, are elite universities alone in their sort of um, attachment to higher income students? And I think the answer is no, like a, a click down to other competitive private universities and you see a similar picture. That said, if I had to say, who do I have, who do I believe has more room for transformation, Trinity or Harvard, it seems like it would be Trinity, right? Because Trinity is still doing 
simpler math. I mean, they need 19 million bucks. Tuition constitutes about two thirds of their budget. So if they're able to get tuition other ways, then they would gladly do it to make their revenue work, right? So I don't know, let's just say that uh, a magic fairy comes in and says, I want to, or forget a magic fairy, a a committed alum says, hey, you know, I really want to make sure that Trinity is more diverse. So I'm going to be paying for the tuition of 200 kids. Well, that would free Perez up to make some different decisions in terms of who he admits and who he doesn't. Whereas Harvard, if that alum were to come in and say, hey, I want to pay for every kid's tuition this year, Harvard might say, great, but they're really not going to change their decision-making uh, or at least are unlikely to because, again, their decision-making is ultimately around uh, endowments, right? And so even if they're not making any money off of tuition or someone's paying for all these kids' tuition, tuition isn't of primary importance for Harvard and other elite universities. Endowments are. And if you're thinking, basically, we want... Our true north is to get wealthy alums who have high affinity for the organization. And your, your, your calculus just looks completely different. It looks like how much do we spend on kids? How engaged are our athletics? What's our Greek-like life? Uh, what's our relationship with like professors and research institutions? Um, how are we doing with plugging into entrepreneurial stuff? So do we have accelerators, incubators, right? They're basically... Um, having to think through that lens. And and as a result, it seems harder for them to sort of escape that business model. Um, so in the end, uh, if we follow the money, we can see how hard it is to enroll kids from lower income families. But I would say that it does seem like a school like Trinity is in better position to experiment and to, to try different models than than is a Harvard or another elite university. Okay, so that's where I'm at. Uh, there's still a lot to learn. If you're an expert in this area or just interested, I'd love to talk to you and learn more. Um, I'll post this episode along with some notes on Substack and look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks.